1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. March 26, 1962, p.m. In studio, made a study for a painting. I'm going to attempt to paint the odor of hepaticas and the smell of earth under sun-warmed dead leaves and violet and white rhythms overhead. White sheets, a deadening hot day. Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. Stephanie. Yes. What are we talking about today? Today we will be discussing Charles Birchfield's life, but specifically two works. Childhood's Garden from 1917 and The Coming of Spring from 1917 to 1943, both watercolor on paper. So, Steph, uh, how did you uh, uh, hear about uh, old uh, old Birchie? You okay old there? Charles Birchie? How'd you uh, how'd you hear about him? Okay, uh, okay. Uh, the first time I saw a Charles Birchfield mm. was the tattoo on your forearm. Mm. Anyway, right. what was that? Was that? I didn't quite hear that. I didn't quite hear that. You introduced me. Um, you introduced me. Okay. <laughs> That's all. I feel I feel validated. Thank you. Okay, great. You introduced me. You so were what, like, what did you first think of Charles Birchfield? I don't know. You just bust out your book of his and you just opened it up. I had no idea what I was expecting, <laughs> but I was like, oh, okay, this is the kind of guy Russell is. He yeah. likes landscapes. <laughs> Nerd. Sorry, just kidding. But then I looked a little bit closer mm-hmm. and I saw how psychedelic they were. Yeah. But I mean, first glance, though, honestly, subtly though, psychedelic, subtly psychedelic. But who doesn't like a good landscape? Right. Then you look more carefully and you can see that they're trippy, which was a twist that I was not expecting. Yeah. You weren't expecting the subtly psychedelic. Actually, maybe it should be called suddenly subtly psychedelic. <laughs> what? Why? Because you suddenly realize it's subtly psychedelic. Exactly. And I think when you are able to capture the kind of subtleties of anything, right? Mm-hmm. Not just nature. You must spend a lot of time with it. So I, I think that he was kind of obsessed with nature. Yeah, he was. Which brings me to this quote of his. How is it possible to make people understand that artists are not interested in art? End quote. That's kind of true. I mean, you're an artist, Stephanie. I am. I'm an artist, Russell. We are artists. We are artists. We are artists. One <laughs> artist 
hive mind. No, we're different, actually. We're no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I feel like it's it's a combination of things, right? Like you are you do go to shows most of the time. You're looking at work and you you appreciate it, but that's not really what gets you into the studio, right? Right. It's small moments yeah. within art, but most of the time it's stuff outside of the museum. Stuff, it's stuff outside, outside, the outside museum. of the gallery. Exactly. It's like like life things that it's happen life. to you. It's like oh my, the feelings I'm feeling it's or beautiful moments you might capture being out in life. I don't know. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. It's like it's everything but art sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think he ran with this idea. I also think he was kind of a weirdo, but <laughs> he ran with that too, right? Yeah. Nature was his obsession. It was the center of his life. It was a life pursuit for him. Life pursuit. It was no joke. I love the idea of the life pursuit. It was not a phase. I mean, what makes Birchie's work so unique and hard to classify, it's because his inspiration was background noise to most people. I mean, literally, yeah. actually background noise. No, really. I mean, he was influenced by things that, that people just take for granted, and he, he just found this extraordinary beauty in those things. That is so true. Art can be inspired by literally anything and everything that is not art. <laughs> so, I mean, it can also be inspired by art, too, like we talked about in the Van Gogh episode, but yeah, all, all right. the time. All, it's, it can be both. Well, it can be different for everybody. It doesn't have to be, you know, nature. It can be it can be something different. Yeah. That's totally fine. Whatever your creative pursuit is, it can evolve, it can stay the same, or it can just get richer with time, right? Like a fine yeah. wine. It ages well. Like a fine wine. So, <laughs> Stephanie, why don't you set the stage for us, me and the listeners at home. Just imagine their earbuds are tucked into their precious little ears like a little child going off to sleep or tucking their little feet in. Singing them a little lullaby. What are we talking about? What are we seeing? What are we feeling? What are we tasting? Well, we highly encourage you to check out the images from today's episode on our Instagram or our website while listening to the episode if you can. We are in a wallpaper factory in Buffalo, New York. New York City. Oh, New York State. New York State. So New York State. Right. So we talked about the Ford Company a couple of episodes ago. And while this is not quite the industrial labyrinth, as was the Ford factory. But you might have seen an arm with wide wallpaper rolls. Is is this my arm span or like LeBron James's arm span or yours? Like, what are we talking? Not LeBron James. Just like your average. Average, citizens. average citizens, normal height, normal weight, normal everything. Arm length. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Wallpaper rolls, that of the average citizen's mm-hmm. arm length, more or less, stretching out for what seemed like miles okay. in this factory, and they are being printed on by hand. They likely used woodcut blocks or screen prints to transfer repeating designs over and over and over and over until <laughs> the uh, long roll of wallpaper was filled. Yep. But this is Charles Birchfield's 9 to 5. So how did he end up? Here? Oh, you yeah, asked? I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. Love. Birchfield had fallen in love with his Salem, Ohio sweetheart, Bertha. Bertha was the one, and he knew it would be years before he could make a living off painting, so he needed to like secure a job pronto because he wanted to put a ring on it. Mm. So, in 1921, they moved miles away from Salem, Ohio to Buffalo, New York to start his job at M.H. Burge and Sons, which it's is many, a wallpaper many firm. No, none of his daughters. Just his I sons. guess not, yeah. yeah. It's kind of sexist. Yeah. So, Buffalo, New York was hours northeast of Salem, which was kind of a big deal to uproot your life to move hours and hours away. Yeah, at this time, you had to uh, get on a horse, I assume. <laughs> no. Okay. Cars. Cars are a thing. Yeah, but they're, the cars are there, yes, but they're they're pulled by horses. Okay. Yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> 
Even though Charles had never designed wallpaper, he took to it immediately with some of his first designs being chosen to be produced as wallpaper. And those wallpaper designs, Stephanie, they did not sell well (laughs) at all. Yeah, CB actually like he, I don't know if it's because they didn't sell well or if because he just didn't like making wallpaper, but he called it hack art. Like he's bitter about the fact that he's not good at it. Yeah, maybe he's a little bitter. You know, maybe if if they were selling really well, you think, wow, this is the the new form of art. Tell us a little bit about some of his wallpaper designs. Yeah, listeners, so you can actually follow along at home here. Uh, We're looking at a few examples of some sketchups he did for wallpaper. I don't think it ever actually got produced. Okay. Uh, this this middle one, this very lush green wallpaper, I would certainly hang in our bathroom. So it feels like, you know, you're showering <laughs> in the forest and there's all these bugs and animals like staring at you kind of like uh, think like oh, look, oh. look at that look at that tasty treat over there showering uh or <laughs> no you know <laughs> but some of them they are more colorful than you would expect they're not necessarily the natural color they're a little bit more synthetic and a little bit more pastel and then some are very true to autumnal colors right but we see cattails we see i think milkweeds i i don't know i'm not an expert here we see some berries that maybe look poisonous it's really beautiful work i mean the colors are more vibrant vibrant and decorative than I think you would expect from wallpaper in the 1920s. Agreed. So this image, Steph, uh, this is this is one of my favorites. I want to show it to you. What do you think? Romantic, like gothy vibes. Yeah, like a like a cure song on a weekend night, drinking some <laughs> drinking some wine, having some tears. Having some love. tears. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. All right. Uh, yeah, I couldn't find any information on this image. I'm really hoping it's one of his wallpaper designs. It certainly has that like infinite pattern that, you know, wallpaper would have. But I, I would cover our house in this. This is great. I don't know about our whole house. Well, at um, least a room, right? Yeah. You know how I love dark colors. Or a closet. Okay. A closet you wouldn't be listening. Oh, anyway, <laughs> listeners, we're looking at a repeating black heart pattern. They're grouped together. So at first they look like these black silhouettes. Imagine you're walking outside of a cave and it's a beautiful, more like you spent a night in a cave. I don't know why you'd want to do that. But it's beautiful. <laughs> you see the sun shining through and you don't really see all the stalactites or the crags or anything like that. You just see the silhouette of them as you're walking out. That's kind of what it looks like to me. And then behind that is like, a reflection off of water almost. It looks like it's dusk Mm. and it's just reflecting off of this beautiful ocean. And then throughout the composition, there are these flora that is like woven through the hearts and you get little dashes of color, a little bit of red, a little bit of purple, but it's very decorative. It makes me want to design patterns for sure. That's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. So I think you can really clearly see how in tune with nature CB was at this time. You can tell that he understood how the seasons change and how that seasonal change changes the color of the flora, right? Right. Or the way that the light shines differently at that time of year just because of the location of the sun. Right. So Charles actually considered a career as a naturalist writer. I mean, he kept writing. He had amassed like 10,000 pages of writing and much of it was about his experience in nature. Mm. He loved the writings of Willa Cather, Henry David Thoreau, and Henry... Henry Longfellow. Mm. So as a child, he loved his mother's garden. He loved just to be in nature, right? Regardless of the weather. Yeah, because Ohio, gets it gets Both all ends. the seasons. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So he loved to document the changing of the seasons and the changing of the flora, which mm. sounds like that would have happened a lot, quite yeah. often, get yeah. four, four, at, least, at least four seasons of it, right? Being as observant as he was, he also saw nature as being under the threat of this rapid industrialization that was going on mm. in America at this time. So this was about the 1910s. So... 
There's a lot of coal mining, a lot of distillation of coal that would create these plumes of smoke and pollution in the rivers close to where he lived. So he saw this firsthand. Seeing how industry was polluting the environment, he at a young age decided that it would be his mission to, quote, dedicate my life and soul to the study and love of nature with the purpose to bring it before the mass of uninterested public, end quote. (laughs) It's pretty insightful. He already can see that people generally don't care. He strikes me as a a very observant person. So that is all to say that maybe he was a little bit too obsessed with nature to make (laughs) a very marketable wallpaper design, right? He's trying to maybe do the justice to nature a little too much. It's like, well, that's not really going to sell. But yeah, he wasn't very great at designing marketable wallpaper. So he was eventually promoted to the head of the firm. But he's not a son. He's not a son's. They must have really liked him. They must start losing sons, though. I mean, this is the 1920s, right? Some of these sons. Syphilis, dead. Tractor accident, dead. Why would he be on a tractor? Choked on a a a bone in a sandwich, dead. I was going to say that they must have really liked him because they could have let him go for just, you know, being bad at designing (laughs) wallpaper. But they're like, oh, we really like him. So why don't we uh, why don't we promote him? So anyway, that happened for him, which is great, except that it was very stressful for him. And it was so stressful that he began to develop ulcers. Yeah, the wallpaper industry, uh, (laughs) like I said, the sons are dying. The sons are dying. Okay, You know, it's a very stressful industry. All right. So this paid the bills for... For Charles, right? He's able to buy a house. Mm. He's able to build a nice art studio in the backyard that he can't use that often because he's, you know, doing the 95. Can you imagine like our little backyard being able to afford build like it have to be a two decker studio, but like for, you know, one deck for me, one deck for you, uh, two decks. But that would, you know, I can't even, like, we need a wallpaper salary stuff. We need to not live around so many trees and power lines is what I'm thinking. Well, with our wallpaper salary, we get them like rerouted, right? Oh, sure. It's that easy. Anyway, being able to not worry about money was nice, but it was just a job, right? And it was one that was so stressful that it caused him physical pain. So it's Mm -hmm. like some good, some bad. During his lunch breaks, when he's on the phone, when he's at home with the kids and with Bertha, (laughs) he is doodling away. He's trying to sneak in some kind of creative output there, right? So he's doodling on notepads, on envelopes, on anything that is in front of him. So his cats better run away. Dogs better (laughs) run away. I mean, kids better run away. (laughs) There's just like a drawing on Timmy's face. I mean, it's clear. I think his attention is just like totally divided, right? He's got that stressful job. He's got those four kids and another one on the way. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good scenario to me. No, he was he was miserable. And then one day he's in crazy pain from these ulcers. And then Bertha's just straight up like, hey, I'd rather be poor and hungry than be a widow. Mm. And that sent chills down Charles' neck because his father had passed away suddenly when he was about five. From an ulcer. Really? I don't know. Okay, we're assuming. Okay. Okay. So anyway, his mom was left to raise five kids on her own. Bertha, my father died of ulcers. His father died of ulcers. His father before (laughs) him, he he died of ulcers. It's in our genes. Literally, it's been passed along in our genes. (laughs) The genes are passed down from father to son every year. What? They carry the ulcer rash. Okay, well, he barely remembered his father, and now he has a child on the way. So all that put together, he's just, he's really determined to not let history repeat itself. Okay, listeners. So Charles, at this point in his career, he is selling occasionally in New York City. New York City. But (laughs) New York City. (laughs) 
but he doesn't sell enough to support himself or his family. So he speaks to a gallery owner and discusses the possibility of him selling enough work to make it happen, right? Mm. To work full time. Yeah. And he's like, okay, all right, let's see how much I can sell in like the next six months. And if it goes well, I'll quit my job at the wallpaper factory. Mm, Okay, okay. Okay. So he works really hard over the next six months in the studio after work and on the weekends, kids bouncing balls off his head, tugging at his cardigan. And guess what? (laughs) He makes it happen. He sells enough to support his family. In spring of 1929, he quits his job. Bye-bye, Mr. M.H. Burgeon Sons. Yeah, I mean, he's got to say goodbye to each one of the sons. He has to go to their oh. graveyard. Oh. He has to leave a little bouquet of flowers next to every single one of them. He's okay. got to, like, pay his respects. Okay. He goes back to Mr. M.H. Burge, and Mr. M.H. Burge is just torn apart, like wallpaper when that you've tried to tear off the wall. Oh, okay. You can tell he's been blotting his tears with wallpaper, the backside of it, because there's little <laughs> pieces of wallpaper stuck to his face. And he's like, today I've lost... <laughs> another son (laughs) okay charles's work at this time was very much about nature like the stuff he was doing Mm -hmm. on the side before he decided to make the leap so he's learned some hard lessons from working at the wallpaper firm and that was that people don't necessarily want to buy what he wants to make (laughs) uh So in order to become more commercially appealing, he was going to give the people what they want. Houses, barns, silos, yards, city streets, people walking their dogs, factories, <laughs> bridges, car, little, little short cars. Most, if not all, of his paintings from this period are in or around Buffalo, New York. I'm sure he enjoyed painting these, but he probably also wanted to catch potential buyers' attention, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it struck a chord with them or if it tugged at their nostalgic heartstrings. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the people buying his work in New York City, New York City, City. probably grew up in New York State. So, you know, they were missing their parents, their rural life. They could be reminded of that. He needed to make money, but he probably also wanted people to love what they were buying. And this is just me speculating. I think he just kind of seems like that kind of guy to me. Okay, listeners. So real quick, we just want to talk about a few examples of what his work started to look like around this time. Here we have a watercolor called Promenade from 1930. And I think this looks kind of playful, more cartoony to me. Yeah. It's like it's a street view. Looks like some Victorian era houses here. Yeah. And some cars, which like this is what they look like at the time. They kind yeah. of look kind of... Well, I don't know if they look quite looked that scrunched. But... Well, no. Right. It's a little bit cartoony. This would appeal to a lot of people. I think I like it. This makes me nostalgic for the Northeast. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would hang this on my wall. I do like the little dog. Okay, you can see that. It's cute. I don't mean that in a negative way at all. Three years later, here, 1933, we have another watercolor called Ice Glare. This one I like. Why do you like it? Uh, I love at? the way that he captures the glare of the sun on the snow. It's it's pretty excellent. So we're looking at another street view. It's like kind of, it's a corner. We're like up on a hill kind of. Mm. And it's it's snowed recently. And this is like the next day when the sun is shining at like 11 a.m. And it's super bright and it's illuminating everything, including the snow. Yeah. Thus blinding you if you're driving. I hate the ice glare. <laughs> so two years later in 1935, he completes this watercolor called Black Iron. So this machinery, this huge colossal machinery, I don't know what it is. It is polluting the water, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And you can see it seeping into the other surroundings around it, yeah. into the banks of the river because it's 
kind of it's above a river. So it's seeping into the water. It's seeping into the dirt around it. And like even the sky kind of looks dirty and yeah. gray. Moody. Yeah. Like po- pollution moody. Yeah. Pollution vibe. Like it, vibes. Not good. Yeah. No. No bueno. I'm Actually, I'm picturing a little like a lizard with sunglasses on a beach <laughs> towel on top of like a toxic Avenger level of nuclear waste. Just okay. hanging out, tipping his sunglasses, you know, up like a. Okay. Pollution vibes. That is a vibe. Yeah. He's got his 1980s like boom box. He's like listening okay. to like some like punk rock. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Charles here, he really gets into the details, right? Whether or not it's a good thing, right? Like, do we want to see the bowing of the wooden walkway on this structure? Don't, uh, I don't want to walk on that. I uh, No, I don't. He's, he is not romanticizing this <laughs> whatsoever. Um, yeah, you can actually like see caked on grime in the windows. It's it's a gross, it's a gross sight. Charles's paintings from this time period were easy for people to relate to because they were sentimental and they represented an American way of life. And these qualities happen to be characteristics of regionalism, which is a movement that he is generally associated with. Hey, Russell. Huh? What? Oh. What are you doing? Huh? I was eating a personal pan pizza. Without me? No, I was, lo- I was looking at the Giza pyramids from the Pizza oh. Hut. Oh, okay, I see. Were we talking about Jasper Johns? (laughs) No. Oh, wait, were we talking about regionalism? Just barely. Okay. Just barely. That's so strange because the two things, Stephanie, that will put me into a fugue state are Jasper Johns flag paintings and regionalism. Are you back? Do you need a little cafe? A little cafecito? Okay, let me get some some cafecito. All right, perfect. Hold on. Okay, we're back. I got my cafecito. Let's do this thing. (laughs) Okay. All right, so what is regionalism? (laughs) Regionalism. Regionalism is a movement based on depictions of American life away from the noisy, bustling cities where things in life were more easygoing. Regionalism was an American response to European modern art that had made its way to the U.S. from Paris, which was the current art capital. So think of Picasso's Cubism or the post-impressionist's vibrant color use and how it must have shocked American audiences. They were like, "Mm, none of that crazy, weird French business or those crazy colors or cubes and whatnot for me. Just plain America, please. Thank you. These works were very detailed and narrative, so they always had a story to tell. There was not a lot of mystery per se. (laughs) What you see is what you get. The people wanted classic apple pie. And no, 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 no. Not a la mode. Just plain pie. Right, Russell? Yeah. How's that cafecito? It's good. It's good. Okay. Love it. Love it. While this was the experience of regional painters who were mostly white and male, it seems obvious to say this, but this was not an all-encompassing experience of the U.S. This was just small pockets. For example, look no further than the Great Migration that we talked about during the Augusta Savage episode where Black people were fleeing the South toward northern cities to escape discrimination and lynchings, right? Just, Just to name a couple things. So this was just small pockets. This was not a reflection of the entire U.S. population, right? Right. We're just gonna throw some examples out there think of landscapes thanksgiving dinners outdoor baptisms i spilled my cafecito stuff a little cafecito (laughs) oh no okay so one of the most famous examples of regionalism is american gothic by grant wood one of the most parodied works of art it's extremely detailed and realistic so and it's oil on beaver wood folks yeah sourced from the region Mm -hmm. locally sourced local beavers local wood 
Local Beaverwood. We have two people standing here. We have a father and a grown daughter. Dad's got a pitchfork and overalls, and he's got a jacket over his overalls. Grown daughter's wearing like a colonial apron. And then behind them is a Gothic-style architecture farmhouse. So it's like, think of like Notre Dame in Paris meets a little farmhouse in Iowa. So many contradictions. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So... Anyway, regionalism in a nutshell, and just in time for you to wakey uppy. Thank you for that, Stephanie. Are we, is, we're good? It's over. Okay. All right. I'm feeling better. Charles makes the leap to full-time painter in 1929. But then, of course, the stock market crashes just a few months later, leading to the Great Depression. Mm. I mean, he just took that job, that painting job. Yeah, but self-employed. regionalism's peak was from 1930 to 1935, which was during the height of the Depression. But that worked out in Charles's favor because okay. this is when he's just starting, right? Yeah. So Buffalo, it was it was hit hard by the Depression because like Detroit, it was largely an industrial city. So the fact that, uh, you know, Birchie here was able to make <laughs> money from painting during this time, it, it's pretty amazing, actually. And he probably didn't want to stray too far from what was selling because of his bad experience with the wallpaper that he made (laughs) and because of how dire things were at this time. He strongly disliked being considered a regionalist because before this phase, he was making work that was much more edgy, dynamic, vibrant, and just pulsating with life. Charles was a small-town boy through and through. He spent two months in New York City at the National Academy of Design, and he hated it. He just stopped going until he could return to his hometown of Salem, Ohio, where he could be surrounded by brooks, forests, and flora. He always loved being in his mother's garden outside of the house. He loved getting lost in the surrounding forests, watching the new growth in the springtime, and the decay in the fall listening to the bugs migrate and sing as the seasons change. Some people grow up hating their hometowns and leaving the first chance they get. But then there's Charles Birchfield, who was just endlessly fascinated by the nature surrounding him. Eventually, he did go to art school, much closer to home in Cleveland, Ohio. It's here where he started thinking about nature as a living, breathing entity, something that landscape paintings couldn't easily capture. Charles was also probably very influenced by a collection of ukiyo-e prints and Chinese scroll paintings that he was fortunate enough to guard early on in art school. So like our friend Van Gogh. But I actually, I really see the influence coming from those Chinese scrolls. Oh. Because they're very moody, they're very washy, Mm. they're very similar to watercolor in a way. I mean, they're using ink. That's true. And it's on paper, which was his jam, his (laughs) jelly, his preserves. (laughs) His preserves. So all of this probably had a profound effect on his work, right? Much like it did for Van Gogh, because he began to reduce his Mm, palette and marks down to the essential marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That best conveyed feeling, right? It helped Charles gain this really unique style early on. There's actually another theory behind Birchie's unique vision of the natural world. Okay. And it's based on a quote-unquote brain fever that he had (laughs) when he was in high school. Okay. Okay. So he was 14. And all 
all the plants and fruit trees were flowering near his home and he wanted to draw them all, right? All mm-hmm. of them. Right. All of them. Sure. All of them. Document them all. <laughs> okay. So he started doing this after high school every day. Drawing them, then documenting their common name, then their scientific name, compiling this huge collection, right? Getting real nerdy with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's wrapped up in this project and it's taking forever. But he just couldn't stop, right? Because the seasons, they were about to change again. He was right. going to miss all this new growth if he stopped. Until he actually, like, he couldn't stop. Like, he could not stop. Like, physically, he, he, he physically just, okay. could not stop. Okay. Like, nobody could make him stop. Okay, now I'm getting worried. Yeah, now you're getting worried. I'm getting worried for him. So okay. it turns out he was experiencing a psychotic break. And, you know, they might have called it a brain fever back in the day because everything was a fever. Then, oh, right. right. They didn't know. They didn't know. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're not feeling good? You have a fever. You know, oh, you hurt your, your knee? That's a knee fever. Like women in hysteria? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's very much like that. Okay. Yeah. But doctors today think it was likely a manic episode. So some people like to attribute the hallucinatory quality in Birchie's work to this brain fever episode. I mean, it could be that or maybe he found some mushrooms in the forest one day when he was hungry. <laughs> but I mean, he certainly wasn't, you know, getting LSD in 1911. So it was probably one of those things. I think the mushrooms are likely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. I could I could see the manic episode happening as well. So like any artist, it's probably a mixture of experiences that spur you to create the work you create. I don't know if you feel that way. I certainly do. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. just one thing ever. It's rarely just one thing. So for Birchie, it's his <laughs> meditative communion with nature, right? It's his ability to observe. And there, you know, probably was some mental health stuff going on. You know, towards the end of his life, he was being treated for depression. I mean, he did, like you mentioned, had an up, a tough upbringing mm-hmm. when his, his father passed away at a very young age. And he's got all these brothers and sisters. He's got to worry about his mom. So let's keep all of his experiences in mind when we talk about the work that he would later refer to as his golden period. Liatris, Spicot, Goldenrod, Solidago, Great Blue Lobelia, Lobelia, Syphilitica, Joe Pyre, Eupatorium Maculata, Marsh Marigold, Alpha, Palestris, Ox Eye, Sunfair, Helianthus, Occidentalis, Smooth, Penstein, Steaming, Digitalis, Swamp, Mercury, Asclepius, and Carmel. The monotonous hum of insects, I mean, he was into that, right? So you can almost imagine him walking from bush to bush to thicket, to tree, with the neighbors peeking out of their stupid curtains. Martha, that weird Birchfield boy is listening to the flowers again. That's it. That's just how I think everybody from like 1910 talks. But he's there, right? And he's acutely aware of the different cricket drones, the grasshopper sounds, the cicadas singing in the trees. It's building up this surround sound symphony of insect noises. Once he wrote about feeling the temperature shift from an oncoming storm and actually noticing the flowers' stems beginning to straighten in the anticipation of the change in humidity. I mean, he is like dialed into this shit, right? That's a mild way of putting it. (laughs) He's observant. He seemed like an intense person. Yeah, kind of, right? (laughs) So all that being said, I mean, you can imagine how fucking frustrating it could have been for Birchie to not be able to convey his level of experience Mm. of communion with nature in his works. I mean, remember, these are on pieces of paper. He's using watercolor. Like, how are you going to convey that? 
But then he also becomes interested in this idea that, you know, a tree doesn't have to only be aesthetically pleasing, right? When Mm. you're designing it, when you're painting it. A tree is also a living thing and it houses whole micro cities of bugs and squirrels, like whatever the fuck else. I mean, imagine the bark as like some, you know, city streets or some shit, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's living. It's living like you or I. So this small town, Normie Boy, he sets out to create yeah. multi-sensory paintings. Okay. And how the hell is he going to do that? I'm curious to find out. Yeah. So he saw those sounds of insects, right? He didn't hear them. He saw the sounds of insects. And that's what he sets out to create. Okay. And an early example that we're looking at here, listeners, it's called the Song of the Katie Dids on an August morning. Katie Dids are some fat green crickets, I guess. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Katie Dids? I think they're Katie Dids. Okay, I've never heard of that before in my life. <laughs> but he's showing us the sound of those crickets as a rhythmic zigzag echoing out of the bushes and grasses. And they're kind of like echoing off the surface. I mean, blink and you'll miss it, right? They look like overgrown weeds almost. But then it gets even deeper. I mean, he doesn't just want to depict sound. He wants to depict specific emotional experiences as illustrative shapes. He's super extra. He can't even just be happy with like, <laughs> exactly. the, like I gotta get next level. So he goes out to like catalog his emotions, much like how he cataloged all those plants during his brain fever in a collection that he wouldn't share with anyone until the late 1950s. Oh, dang. Okay. But this is like 19, I don't know, 15, 17, something like that. Keeping it super secret. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So he calls it conventions on abstract thought. Wow. And they are far more detailed than just zigzags. So let's take a look. So by my count, we have 23 symbols. You could call them like hieroglyphics or lexicon entries, whatever you want to call them. Some are unnamed, but here are the ones that he actually named. Okay. So we have hypnotic intensity. Looks like Frida's unibrow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We have aimless brooding. We have dangerous brooding, which I guess is worse than aimless brooding. And then we have morbid brooding, which is not quite as bad as dangerous brooding, but (laughs) a little bit worse than aimless. And then, of course, not to be outdone by morbidness. And then the escape from the banal everyday life to the world of the ideal. That looks familiar. Yeah, does that look familiar? Psychological (laughs) moods, meditation, surprise, two versions of fear. Oh, God. Both of which kind of look like the wave off of Kanagawa. The fear of loneliness. It looks like the top of Pikachu's head. (laughs) (laughs) The memory of things that are gone forever. Not to be confused with the memory of pleasant things that are gone forever. That's a different entry. Imbecility. Insanity. Sadness. Menace, evil, the fascination with evil. Looks like the smile of a clown. It's horrifying, listeners. It's sinister. (laughs) I hate it. Muted sorrow and two different entries for nostalgia. Okay, so how would you describe these? I mean, they're just like shapes. Sometimes they look like flowers. Sometimes they look like mountain crags. I would say this is more close to like a key on a map yeah. than like hieroglyphs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not just black or white, literally. Right. There's such, it's so nuanced. There's like shading here and there. There's gradients. Mm-hmm. I just feel that it's so very Charles Birchfield that this wouldn't just be like a clear cut, like hieroglyph symbol <laughs> situation. They're like little mini compositions yeah. within themselves. And we should say, listeners, they're not super abstract. So after you spend some time with these conventions for abstract thought drawings, it's really impossible not to see these shapes show up in his work from the same time period. So we have two images here. We have church bells ringing, rainy winter night. Horrifying. Yeah, this one is a horrifying image. (laughs) 
you would not expect this from the uh, landscape painter. Oh, no. But I see a church steeple that is clearly staring at you with its imbecility eyes. Below that is the horrifying, horrifying fascination with evil, smiling little face peering out of a house window. Then you have morbid brooding everywhere in this composition. You see menace. You see fear. Oh, man, it's just... <laughs> How are you going to sleep at night? I That's what know. I'm thinking. How are you going to sleep tonight? He's working through some shit here, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah. That church bell tower you're talking about looks like a giant insect to me. Yeah. A yeah. futuristic robot insect. I'm good. <laughs> and then it just shows up in a lot of his landscapes throughout this time, too. So we're, we're looking at it like a spookier landscape with some dead trees. It's the middle of winter. Right. The trees don't have leaves. Right. There's not a lot of foliage on the forest floor. Yeah. And he's, he's using these symbols not so apparently in this one. You, they're kind of open to your interpretation. Like, But I see dangerous brooding. I see fear of loneliness. I'm, I'm seeing a, a morbid brooding, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's it, not it's, immediate. It's like you have to kind of look at it. You're like, oh, how boring. But then you start to look at it and is they kind of start to come out at you. The trees are, they look like they've, you know, withstood a fire almost, you know? Oh, yeah, because it's kind of like, like kind of smoky, Yeah, foggy. it's smoky and they're kind of like burned to a crisp in some areas. It's really sad. You see that tree in the background? Yeah. Like a little like pool in front of him, yeah. some kind of mini pond situation. It's very sad. Very figurative in a way, too. Well, it's like loneliness, but it's like, oh, no, I have myself. I have my reflection. This <laughs> Okay. I know. Getting I know. so deep. I know. So deep. So I think you would get a lot of those feelings anyway from looking at this, but having this sort of reference point is a way to say, no, he's like trying to show what's on the inside of his mind with these like exterior landscapes. Well, it's kind of too, like kind of a smart way to catalog his emotions. Mm-hmm. Like if he's feeling overwhelmed by, I don't know, some kind of mental duress, like, yeah, mm-hmm. let me organize it. Let me, let me put it into works. So this was a very experimental period in Charles's life. A lot of the work looks really half-baked, and then when it's good, it's like... Really good? Yeah, it's phenomenal. (laughs) It's vibrant. It's alive. All right. Let's get into one of the works that we'll be discussing a little bit more in depth called Childhood Garden from 1917. This is it. This is the last thing you see before closing your eyes because you just can't keep them open any longer. The wind is powerful and deafening as it sweeps over you like a crashing wave. You're standing outside. Everything had been still and warm just seconds ago, but now your surroundings look completely different. Golden rays of sunshine are quickly disappearing as trees multiply in size and billow up past what was once the tree line and immerse themselves into the ominous nimbus clouds. The sound of rolling thunder and shaking tree leaves fills the air as they shimmer various shades of vibrant greens. The flora at your feet change to a golden hue that won't last. A cluster of flowers scrunch their faces, their roots clinging to the earth as their delicate forms sway violently from side to side. Everything is reacting to the oncoming storm. Everything is in motion. The only thing that seems to be staying still is a house in the center of all of this commotion, an anchor in this tumultuous moment before our eyes. All right, so now that we have a sense of what is going on here in Childhood's Garden, let's get into the details of some of the aspects that make up Charles's golden period. This is a work where you can really start to see him exaggerating the fact that nature's alive. So you don't believe nature's alive, <laughs> Stephanie? 
I do. Okay. I forget. Anyway, so we see trees. We see a house far away. We see clouds. We see foliage. The leaves are less descriptive and they instead start to look like these echoing plumes. There's mm. just like these reverberating echoes bouncing off of them. Like sound waves. Yeah. It's as if some of these lines are representing sound. And if that is the case, then this is a very loud moment in the garden. It's like if you remember this time before coronavirus, it's like a stadium concert. So there's that movement, but also the trees and the bushes are all turning into the same billowing shape as the clouds above. They're almost moving towards the clouds. I think Birchie here is showing us that everything is just accelerating in anticipation of the storm. All the plants are getting so excited for the storm. (laughs) Really? The flowers look kind of scared. No, no. Well, maybe if it's heavy rain. Well, okay. So in their anticipation, I feel like they're taking on different shapes, right? And they actually, to me, they kind of start to look like they're turning into pagodas. Like the trees are actually turning into green pagodas. And then the golden flora on the ground gold pagodas yeah they're golden that's a really great observation everything looks activated because of the storm coming in okay the flora look ready to like feast (laughs) (laughs) Um, they're gonna like soak up that sweet sweet rain that's about to come down you know And nothing's structured. Everything feels like it's flowing. You know, they do look like pagoda forms, like they're spiraling towards the sky. Yeah. But they're also like organic and unstructured. Yeah. Shapes and colors that you expect to see in nature are gone out the window, right? (laughs) He's keeping you on your toes. Who uses orange or purple as like a straight up line in nature? Yeah, no one. Well, Birchie, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But there is a bit of uneasiness, though. The unusual, closely cropped composition throws you into the movement, all of the movement, and the colors go right to the edge of the paper, Mm -hmm. right? There is no breathing room. There's no place for your eyes to rest. It's almost anxiety-inducing. And it's amplified by the echoing shapes that are like almost battling. They're almost like firing at one another, right? Yes. There's a kind of spookiness, too, like on top of all of that. The house, this little house that's kind of almost disappearing behind all of these crazy shapes and colors, it may have been our only symbol of normalcy, right? Like, (laughs) oh, that's our anchor, right? But it's not an inviting house. I don't want to go into that house. It's like a Hansel and Gretel house, right? (laughs) And I think there's like a green monster outside the door, blocking the door maybe. Like, you can't come in. You must face the rain. Maybe I don't (laughs) want to face the rain. But those flowers, right? The flowers that are right in front of the house, their little faces are just like scrunched. And like, maybe they know something. We don't know. Maybe (laughs) nature knows something we don't know. So we're seeing some of his symbols from conventions on abstract thought in this as well, right? Right. So I see surprise in that window (laughs) from the house. In the middle of the monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Surprise, a monster. Right. So when you first look at it, just generally taking your first glance, oh, look, all the pretty colors. Oh, look at floral. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And not just the feelings you get without knowing his conventions on abstract thought, then knowing that he's embedded them in there. Like, I see fear. I see... Maybe morbidness. Maybe. He looks like a cat. (laughs) He's in awe, but he's also in fear at the same time. He's experiencing um, some childhood sublime. Childlike wonder. (laughs) It's totally appropriate. The title of this is Childhood's Garden. Mm -hmm. When you're a child, everything seems bigger, scarier, or more awesome, right? Like more awe-inducing. And Birchie being this really, I think, sensing, feeling, emotional person... 
he probably remembered this vividly. Maybe this is a specific memory for him or a collection of specific memories. I could see that. The shape of nostalgia is in a lot of these too, right? Which so, is kind of like a wavy cloud yeah, sort of yeah. shape. And once again, you're kind of projecting onto these, right? Because the yeah. shapes that he made, they're very organic shapes for the most part. Some of them are very obvious, but others could be a lot of different things. As a viewer, we just, we inevitably project onto mm-hmm. works. Even if the answer is spelled out right there, what you should be thinking, mm-hmm. we still, we're going to think what we're going to think. Especially a piece that's so claustrophobic like this one is. Right. And we are going to project onto it. And I think that is something that's so great about Charles's work is that while this was such a personal piece for him, like he embedded his own personal symbols for feelings and whatnot, we didn't need to know them to feel those things, if that makes sense. Right. And I think that's why his personal work, this golden period work, is so relatable to us is that we don't need to know what he was thinking we are feeling it exactly it's not how he meant it and i think that's what makes a great work of art birchie was so smart (laughs) to use these organic shapes right because a lot of them like we were saying they could be a lot of different things but he chose them very carefully it's hard to articulate because the shapes do evoke a feeling but that feeling's not clear like the shape of clouds can be nostalgic and you don't maybe know why all the time that's saying a lot too that you're saying that he's smart about using these shapes well he's in his 20s right now yeah but he's spent probably thousands of hours already at this point in his career outside. Mm -hmm. So he knows that these organic shapes show up everywhere because they do. Yeah. They're everywhere. Yeah. So it's in him. It's part of his creative intuition to just kind of put them out there. It's a part of him. Exactly. So just imagine what his work is going to look like in 40 years. All right, listeners, it's time to travel back to the future, to 1930s Buffalo, New York. Buffalo was a working class city. Okay, it had tough weather and a largely middle class population and people prided themselves on working hard. And while artists are typically considered outsiders, Buffalonians saw Charles as one of them. Mm. He could regularly be spotted either going to a studio or to the location that he was painting every day from nine to five like clockwork, lunch pail in hand, (laughs) walking or bicycling home. Yeah, so he'd bring his like lunch pail with him and everybody thought that was cool because he was like, he's one of us. He's clocking in. (laughs) Not only was he a beloved citizen of Buffalo, but he also shed a lot of light on the beauty of the city through his regionalist depictions, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And he didn't shy away from buildings or blocks that were dilapidating due to the depression. He spoke to the humanity of these people and he celebrated the life of these people. Right. I mean, people loved him. In Buffalo. And they still do. Like any sort of lecture you listen to with actual people from Buffalo. <laughs> actual people. Love his work, right? This lovable, normal, Mr. Rogers type of guy. On the surface. The work that he was making during this regionalist phase was just not fulfilling for him. The timeline was he graduates from art school in Cleveland. And then he's making those weird, immersive, vibrant works. And then he's drafted into the army. And then he's discharged. And then he falls in love with Bertha. <laughs> and then he gets that job at the wallpaper factory and then he has five kids yeah so a lot going on there no time to paint yeah his exploration of these multi-sensory lyrical paintings are left unresolved right they're just like nagging at him Mm -hmm. this whole time those moments in nature that had so compelled him to record on paper those moments that made their way onto the watercolor surfaces they would continue to vibrate to resonate in his brain for Mm -hmm. the next 15 years wow kind of like a telltale heart right (laughs) 
but nature sounds they're constantly at the back of his mind right and like just like the crickets the birds and he's just like i cannot do this anymore bertha okay here we go i can't paint these pictures anymore i can't i belong in the woods i'm sorry that's where my soul is and where it's always been i must go now listeners please don't Don't unsubscribe i'll be back in time for supper real talk he was like, I can't do this anymore, Bertha. It's just not me. It's time to go back to Ohio, so to speak. So he literally goes back to where he left off. He revisits early unfinished works that he had considered failures at the time because for some reason he could not accomplish the idea that he'd had for that piece. So you're talking about he's actually physically going back to work that was unfinished from like right. 1917. Right, right, right. Okay. So that young Charles Painter of the 1910s was very ambitious. Mm-hmm. His vision was ahead of the skills and the years of practice that his hand muscles had yet to gain, right? The ideas are there, but he just doesn't have the skill set yet to execute it. Right. So now, almost two decades later, he recognizes this fact and he's just like, oh, you just weren't ready for this, Charles. Yeah. You just weren't there yet. Some of these old works, he literally uses them as starting points now. He starts expanding them by adding blank paper to all sides of the compositions. Listeners, he's taking his old paintings Uh on paper and then he's piecing papers next to it, around right? it to make around it bigger it to make it much bigger uh-huh yeah. which is hard to do because paper if you piece it together looks like it's been pieced together. pretty obvious yeah <laughs> well he has that uh wallpaper factory skills so a lot of it is seamless unless mm. you're really looking like me i like to get up in there you can yeah. <laughs> you can see it but most of the time you would never even know guess it was uh worth it to uh, get those uh stress ulcers from the wallpaper factory after all So, listeners, making work is a continuous, lifelong journey. Mm -hmm. That's why it's really hard for young artists when they are discovered too early. They're still learning and experimenting, and then suddenly there's this pressure to keep doing what made what made you famous in the first place. Yeah, kind of like how Birchfield he starts making money from from these regionalist works, and he had he basically has to keep doing that. Yes, and right, and some artists do fine, but it could be stunting for others, right? That mm-hmm. that personal growth in your studio, right? Because when you have a certain level of prestige, it can be scary to make a jump into the unknown mm-hmm. because you're so used to making money from that if you're selling, or you're so used to being celebrated for that if you're showing you know right. so it can be a little bit scary if you're showing as in you're being exhibited right right but that results in a flash in the pan sometimes like they say what is that a flash in the pan oh you don't you don't cook maybe listeners, it's just a random expression i don't know no 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 you would know this if you're a cook like i am uh like me okay. and the hyenas back in our kitchen so it's like you're cooking <laughs> and then uh, you get a little like spark in the pan because of the oil like hits the fire and the flame you know it's like the whoa. fire and the flame you know so like you're you're popular for a minute and then your flame's out that sucks yeah and if you have hair, like our hyenas, get a little bit, you know, you lose some hair. He's a little singe. Yeah. That singe stench in yeah. the air. And you okay. know, especially hyenas, they don't bathe that often. Imagine you're walking through a mountain forest on a chilly spring day. You're immersed in the shadows of the surrounding trees, and even though it's daytime, the breeze gives you shivers. You can hear running water, but don't see it quite yet. To the right, under a canopy of trees, you see thawing icicle patches, a lingering remnant of winter, as the stream, having long been frozen in hibernation, wakes up and slowly begins making its way down the mountain. Fallen branches, exposed gnarled tree roots, and bare hills of dirt frame this awakening stream. There's another stream running along your left, and it splashes down the hill. 
Behind the stream, there's a clearing of trees revealing bright green mountains in the distance. The warm sun rays reach you as they reflect off the water. It is the coming of spring. All right, listeners, we are going to discuss the coming of spring from 1917 to 1943. Watercolor on paper. Charles came back to this piece after 26 years, as you probably noticed. Yeah. He was in his 20s when he started this, when he had this idea and he just had to put it down on paper. But he came back to rework it and finish it in his 50s. And now we have this incredible piece. He started this during his golden period, which was the same year that he started Childhood's Garden. He continued using that chill earth tone palette that the regionalists love when he revisited this piece years later. We see a deceivingly traditional forest painting. It's early in the spring, so winter is thawing and there's new growth and it's just the beginning. And it's split up between the spring side and the, I guess, lingering winter side. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite winter, but you can see a little bit of that winter hanging on. So he is using that representational skill set from his regionalist phase, but he's also injecting the vibrant, emotional sensory loaded imagery of his youth but the combination it's a lot more nuanced it's not very obvious at all I imagine this is not a real place. I imagine that he was not painting this on site. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was initially back in like 1917, but... <laughs> That's true. Is it even there? He's revisiting it in his mind now. Did it exist? Still? But yeah, no, I, I think you're right. He's working from his imagination, but also he's got those years of observation, right? He's piecing together different memories as if it's like a collage of memories. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's also an analogy of his work, right? He's coming out of a dark period, so... So to speak. Coming out of that dark winter area, walking down that hill. I guess. And he's walking um, into an oncoming spring or a rebirth, so <laughs> to speak. There's a psychedelic yellow color in the silhouette that's coming off of this tree or shrub in the foreground. <laughs> yeah. It's really different than the rest of the trees here. It's, it's very young. It's a new growth. And it's composed of shapes that look very similar to his convention of uh, abstract thought shapes, right? Yes, I can see that for sure. The hills also start to look a little bit cartoony like they're almost like rainbow arches but you know fuzzy with foliage there's this cute little splash at the bottom of the stream <laughs> where it meets the brook and it, it kind of reminds me of a of a disney splash oh yeah because it's got the very ornate little dots for the water spring Specs, it's yeah really cool it's really cool i mean this is a place where i want to you know i want to hang out here i want to put my hot sweaty like hiking feet in that oh, okay. ice cold water oh no <laughs> you know i'm gonna touch that psychedelic tree and just just to see what happens okay you know? i hope you're like, not I'm alone on this or yeah i'm gonna get lost in the in the forest after that i yeah i don't know psychedelic birchy forest it actually but it does i mean seriously it reminds me of hiking deep in the woods it's really dark in the thick of the forest even though it's daylight out if you've ever had that experience listeners like like you're stepping into another world when you're hiking deep into the forest you're in the trees world now (laughs) i mean nature can be overwhelmingly frightening and it can be overwhelmingly beautiful too yeah it puts you in this different headspace when you're out there for a long time and it is like psychedelic in a way right and you don't necessarily need to like munch on any mushrooms on the on the trail or have a manic episode to experience that. So Birchie knows this. He knows it's unpredictable and he is showing us that experience. He is so cool. He did not need (laughs) drugs to, to like know that this is a feeling you can get. 
he can totally go headfirst into that psychedelic landscape, but he can also pull it back because he knows the serene slash volatile experience of nature. I've been tempted to say that he's anthropomorphizing nature, but it's like, uh, no, nature's alive, right? So he's a realist in a way. He's just, yeah, he's using a, he's using a birchy lens. <laughs> Except his lens is a psychedelic <laughs> magnifying glass. <laughs> Towards the end of Charles's life, like the last 15 to 20 years... He was super prolific. So prolific. His work gets way more psychedelic and way more dreamlike. And he would continue to paint this way until he died of a sudden heart attack. Mm -hmm. So this shows you what a life pursuit in the arts really looks like. You can continually reinvent yourself. You can revisit past ideas and thoroughly dig into those ideas that you want to express. It doesn't happen in a day, right? right? Or a year. I mean, listeners, it's important to note that Charles didn't hit his stride until his 50s. As a culture, we're just so hung up on making it in <sighs> our 20s or yeah. like making those like Forbes 30 under 30, 40 under 40. <laughs> like, fuck that. Life happens. You're going to get there when you get there. Go out there and do it because you don't know where life is going to take you. You can also just sit around in fear not doing anything because you feel like you are not hitting the metrics when you're supposed to be hitting the metrics. You can change your style. You can change your mediums. You can work on the same thing your entire life. You can revisit things that you worked on when you were younger. It doesn't matter. It is that exploration. It's that pursuit that makes it worth it. I don't know. He's uninhibited. You can tell he gave no fucks. He's like, this is for me. He's like, I got to resolve this within myself. Mm -hmm. He's not painting for anybody. He's comfortable now, right? And not everyone's going to be that lucky to be that comfortable as far as money, right? Right. But this was about him. And he was painting for himself. He didn't care about anybody else. He just, he needed to resolve this within himself. Actually, that's an important point because, you know, while it was the depression, he was making money during that time for the most part. Some people are not going to be in that position. So also don't feel like you're a failure if you can't do the output that some of these artists have done either. Right. I mean, push yourself, but don't kill yourself. Right. Take care of yourself, but push yourself. (laughs) (laughs) There's a balance. Yeah. And I mean, that's just part of every artist, I think, studio practice is just finding out what your limits are. (laughs) Okay. So let's look at these. So remember, listeners, these are at the end of his life. We're just going to run through them. So in this painting, we have sun reflecting off of the wind, and it's kind of like (laughs) weaving through these trees and dissipating into the wind. It's almost like a picture you didn't mean to take, right? You accidentally took it as you were putting your phone (laughs) away because it's so blurry. Yeah, it's like when the snow is being picked up by the wind and it's catching the reflection of the sun. Oh, oh, yes. But, I mean, it looks like also it could be like an alien spaceship shooting at you. Sure, yeah, (laughs) yeah. You you don't know what you'll see in the woods. Okay, in this image, I love this image. Uh, So there are birds. (laughs) moths mantises hiding in trees and like like we just said the last image was very minimal this is like maximal right yep their songs are echoing into the landscape reverberating off of the the tall grasses and the trees It's, it's phenomenal it's distorting everything around it so this work is a little bit more illustrative and less realistic yes he is stripping down things to their essentials but he's also amping up the amount of information he's giving you so in the center of this or off center actually there is this halo that kind of looks like a i I don't know steph what does that look like (laughs) it's like a portal to another world i think that portal represents you stepping out of the sound right because there's like a meadow there Mm. and as soon as you walk through it all the sound will cease because you will be outside of the trees oh that's interesting 
All right, a couple more. They're both night scenes. They're both very hallucinatory. There are flowers, (laughs) there are Milky Ways. It's that time of day where the sun and moon are out at the same time. There are patterns in the sky where the birds were just flying. There's just like no light pollution at this point. It's also a little bit scary because there are these three-eyed flowers staring back at you. Glaring. (laughs) Like, why are you in our world, dude? Get out. Knowing Vitato, Alice in Wonderland took a scary turn. I don't know how else to say it. And then we have another forest scene to the right that is in color. One of my all-time favorites of his. I love this one. I love this one. So it's like a forest landscape composition, but there's a glowing tree in the middle that's Mm -hmm. framed by the forest. Kind of see some morbid brooding in there. Okay. But you're stepping out into a clearing, so you're walking away from the morbid brooding, and you're walking towards this tree that's illuminated by the moon. Light. He's in a stride now. You can tell it's second nature to him. No mm-hmm. pun intended. It's second nature to him <laughs> at this point. I don't know about you, but for me, I can tell that he's put in thousands of hours into honing his craft, right? Just by the depth and complexity of this yeah. composition alone, yeah. right? And then the technical skill on top of all of that. Yeah, because I doubt that he's actually going to a location painting this. Like maybe he did some sketches at a location, but this seems to me more out of his mind than direct observation. At this point, he's got 60 some years of experience like drawing and I, painting. I would believe it. It also reminds me of Mr. Burns glowing in the forest, the tree. It's just that halo. I don't know. The halo makes me think of Jesus and of Mr. Burns glowing in the forest. I don't know. They're kind of the same thing. (laughs) So, Stephanie, we're here. We're at the Art Slice Museum. We had to walk through many, many, many different type of morbid forests with all the different morbids. Morbid broodings, morbid leeches, morbid foxes, morbid bears. Okay. Just morbid, man. It was a bummer. It was a real bummer. But we're here we've brought with us a collection of various Charles Birchfield pieces. Okay. And we have to decide if they're going in the Art Slice Museum, top of the Art Slice Hilltop, surrounded by the candy and condom moats. Yes. Okay. What do you like about his work? I like the combinations of experiences within his paintings. I love that he was using his experience with nature and his writings that talked about the inner workings of his artistic process, yeah. which included emotional and sensory responses to nature. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, shows us that we as humans are just as moody as nature. <laughs> Hashtag sad lights. Oh, you know? Oh, yeah. It's real. Sad lights are real. (laughs) It's real. What I appreciate about his work is, like you were saying, the lifelong journey that he was on to make these. I mean, today, I think he might have gone into like video or animation, Um, or maybe he would have just chosen to be a writer altogether. Okay. Something that could more easily describe the inner and outer sensory experiences that he felt and that he wanted to pass on to people who were interacting with his work. Yeah. Totally. But he, he chose to show us with pictures, right? And I think it shows that sometimes having limits sparks a creative solution that is new and unexpected. It took him several decades to figure out how to say it, but we're better for it, I would argue. Because it does make us think about our sensory experiences. Something that we can be distracted from. Something you take for granted, right? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's going in the Art Slice Museum for me under one condition. Oh no. Okay. You know what that is? A huge, beautiful biodome. What? In our Art Slice Museum, there'll be a wing that you walk into, you know, there's like butterflies flying around. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, because that's what he wanted, right? That's what he really wanted. I love it. I love it. I love it. But listeners, if you love it, if you love it, or if you don't love it, (laughs) we would like to know. You can let us know what you thought about the work or any of the work that we talked about in previous episodes at artslicepod at gmail.com. 
Listeners, we have continued getting messages from you all this week, and I just have to say that we love hearing from you, and we love hearing that you are seeing art differently now because of the show. Yeah, that's such a big compliment. Huge. Yeah, Huge. Even, even despite my dumb jokes. <laughs> no, really, it means a lot to us, so please keep it up and don't hesitate to reach out. If you just want to say hi, or you want to tell us about a work of art that's inspired you, we love to hear it. I say this every time, but it really means a lot to hear that from you all because it takes us a lot of time to make these. That's why we're late. We write, we record them, everything. We do it all. It's just two of us in our free time. So thank you. I guess that's all I have to say. A very special thank you to Andrew Leslie, who has been a supporter and listener of Art Slice since like day one. And we were like, hey, it would be cool to have another voice on this episode. So he offered to actually do the voice of Charles Birchfield. Andrew's also a wonderful poet, and he actually sent us his book a little while back. We're going to link it in this week's show notes. Go check it out. Great stuff. Listeners, like we mentioned before, you can still grab a three-pack of Art Slice stickers. We have the creepy Art Slice bum- <laughs> bumper sticker, a holographic logo sticker, and a clear logo sticker um, either on our website or through Instagram. You can also get a free sticker. They're a little bit smaller smaller than the stickers in our three pack, but you can get a free sticker by leaving us a positive written review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast player. Five stars only. (laughs) And once the review is posted, just send us a screenshot along with your address and we will mail you one or two out for free. If you're listening to this months later, we may be out of free stickers. uh, So it's a first come first serve thing. Um, Either way, stickers or no stickers, you can help us out by subscribing to us on everything. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, which, yeah, we don't really do much on Twitter. We're working on that. Uh, (laughs) YouTube. (laughs) Um, So share, listen, and write a review on your pod player of choice. It all helps us please the algorithm goddesses so we can remain visible and reach more listeners like you. So funny story about the music we featured in today's episode. We were doing our research and we came across a track called Charles Birchfield. So I listened to it, and I thought, actually, this is really fitting for the show. It's also really fitting for Charles's work. Um, So I reached out to the artists, who are Rob Lynch and Jonathan Hughes, and they said it was made for a collection of work in Niagara Falls, not too far from Buffalo. Each track from the album, which is called Public Private, was created with the artist's work in mind. And I think each track actually matches the artist really well. You can tell they really paid attention to the artist's work and try to think of like what kind of soundtrack that artist <laughs> might have. But like always, we'll link it in the show notes. Go check it out. So that about does it for us today. And no. And no. Your kid could not have painted that watercolor. Oh. Oh no. Shit. Shit. The little Pontramon Tommy stuff. I know. We heard them. I did. We just forgot. We're so bad. We're so okay, we're such re- bad we're, parents. Okay, listeners, hang on real quick. We're gonna do the art slice pantry. Oh my god, they're, they're so hungry stuff. When you think of watercolor, you probably think of those hard oval colors sitting in plastic egg-like carton palettes that you painted with in grade school. But water-soluble paint has been around for centuries. There is a long history of artists using pigment with water and other additives like honey or water-soluble inks in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. But most art history textbooks would have you believe that watercolor first showed up in the European Middle Ages. Today, watercolor is pre-made with pigment and usually gum arabic, which is a tacky binding agent that gives out-of-the-tube watercolor a texture similar to other paints. Water activates the pliability of this paint, and the amount of water an artist uses will change the flow of the paint. Do you want your watercolor dense and thick? Use a tiny bit of water on your brush. Do you want the pigment spreading across or pooling on the surface? 
Use a lot of water. Do you want some of the areas to be controlled and others more loose? Wet that area of the surface before applying paint. Finding the right kind of surface, additives, brushes, angle of your easel or table will require artists to experiment a lot. Like oil paint, you can wipe away portions you don't like, often with a wet sponge and a towel. The ability of watercolor to range from transparent to opaque is why artists keep coming back to this medium. Using a semi-transparent layer on top of a semi-transparent layer can build up a surface that feels vibrant and deep. Allowing a bit of bright white surface to shine through thin layers of paint actually alters the way a viewer's eye will see the color. Birchfield uses this effect sparingly in his paintings of Buffalo, but used it more frequently with his late period landscapes. Stephanie, thank you for that. Art Slice Pantry, and no. Your kid could not have painted that. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Bye. 